Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. We begin the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi lives in the days after Ezra had returned and Nehemiah was the governor of Israel. This is around 450 BC, over 400 years before Jesus would come to the earth. This man, Malachi, lived and he was a prophet of Israel. In fact, he is in the lineup of the prophets, would be what we would say the last prophet to Israel before the Messiah comes. He's included in the Jews, the grouping of the minor prophets. They had the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those guys are the, the big guns. They're the big players. And then there's 10 small books at the end of your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, those guys. And this one, Malachi, in Jewish writing, those are referred to as the minor prophets. They still prophesied. I kind of chuckle that they call them the minor prophets because they deal with some pretty major topics when they're prophesying. But they didn't have the long books and the huge impact, maybe. Like Jeremiah prophesied to Israel for over 40 years that they would repent and you remember, it wasn't successful. I feel bad for him. Talk about terrible prophecy gig. This guy, he telling him, you guys need to change that stony heart to a heart of flesh. You need to turn back to the Lord. Get away from your wickedness. If you don't, God's going to carry you away into captivity. Just like happened to our brothers in the north. He was prophesying to them. And did the southern kingdom of Israel, did they listen? They're referred to as Judah, not Israel. The, the northern tribes, the ten tribes to the north, technically nine and a half to the north and two and a half to the south, but it's easier for our minds if we just think of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 were in the north, they called that Israel, and then the two in the south, Judah, Judah is down in the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is, and these guys in the south, they actually saw the northern kingdom carried away by the Assyrians in around 725 BC, and the Lord was so patient. For another 125 years, the Lord sent Isaiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah, all those prophets, just to Judah, the southern two tribes. There was a little bit of Benjamin there, so two and a half. But just those guys, and told them, if you don't stop sinning, God's going to judge us the same way he judged our brethren to the north. They got carried away into captivity. If you don't listen, he's going to let us be carried away for our sin. And Jeremiah was the last one in the lineup of those guys. And he prophesied for 40 years that they would stop. And, and they didn't. And that's when we read the story in the Bible about Daniel. When Daniel was captured by Nebuchadnezzar the king in the book of Daniel, came and took them away. And he picks out the choice young men of Judah and brings them back to his hometown, 400 miles away, and brainwashes them. Feeds them the best foods gets him to become loyal to Babylon so that he can later send them back as his representatives to say, hey, everybody, let's just obey Babylon. The king is a really nice guy. And he fed us really well. I mean, we were prisoners, but boy, we were taken care of. And you would like to be his subjects. Trust us. No, and Nebuchadnezzar was working an angle. He wasn't stupid. He was dominating the whole world. And so he captures them. And you remember what happens during that time from around 600 BC until the time we're coming to now. For the first 70 years, Jerusalem is laid waste. It does not go well for them. 
and the whole region gets torn down. The Babylonian Empire pretty much through different rulers comes in and cause a lot of trouble. And so they had some bad stuff happen. And then the king of Babylon, he dies and his son takes over for just a night or so. And then Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, they take over. And the world ruling kingdoms go from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the lead in. During the time when the Medo-Persian Empire has control of what we would say is the world-dominating power in the world at that time. It transferred from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. They had the influence over the territory of Judah, over the area of what we call today Israel. They were the guys politically in charge. And yet, at the same time, God was sending his messengers to speak to the remnant that was left. So there was just a few poor farmers left in the land. And the others had been carried away into captivity. And God said, I'm going to call back my people. I am going to cause this place to flourish again. It's going to come back. And then that's when we, we read the story in 525 about Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah. And they prophesy to the people and they rebuild the temple in Israel. And things start coming back together. And, and then over in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, you have the story of Esther. Some folks, they love that story. The queen and the queen mother, she went and bowed to Xerxes and then they said, well, she can't be queen anymore. We got to find a suitable queen. And you guys know the love story. Esther gets pulled in and then Esther finds out this bad guy, Haman, wants to kill all the Jews and wants to make it legal to hunt them. And Esther's uncle says, don't you think maybe God put you there for a reason? Can't you speak up? And she's like, I don't, I don't, I she didn't really sound too confident about it, but he said, that's why God put you there. You better speak up or we're going to all die. The reason I'm going over this is this is the prelude to what happens. Esther goes and talks to the king and says, after a few dinners and getting up her nerve, she finally tells him, there's someone hunting our people. And he's like, who? And it's that guy across the table, Haman. And he means evil for us. And, and then the king is so mad. Haman goes over and throws himself on Esther and pleading for his life. And the king's like, get your hands off my wife. And one of the guys tells him, oh, by the way, he built some gallows to hang Esther's uncle. There are big gallows out there, 60 cubits high, 90 feet high. Go hang him on his gallows. And so the enemy, this is a great turn of events. All of a sudden, the political powers go from it's bad news for the Jews to it's a day of celebration. They've been delivered. And then the Lord sends in Ezra and then Nehemiah and the temple gets started to be rebuilt. And this is the time now, what we're coming to, when Ezra is the priest and Nehemiah is the governor and Malachi is going to prophesy to these fellows. The temple has gotten rebuilt and I got to tell you just for a little background, they really aren't doing quite the temple service properly yet just to forewarn you, because we're going to read this later. You'll see, they didn't really have what we call true temple service to God down like the way they should have it. And so God has to send a message, and he uses this prophet Malachi. So we read here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The Lord says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I loved Jacob 
but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them a wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now beyond the border of Israel would be the land of Edom, or Esau. By the way, they're interchangeable in the biblical sense. Esau becomes the one who dwells at Edom. And you can refer, as like just saying synonym, basically. You can go Esau or Edom the same. Some people say, well, I don't get it. He was talking about Jacob. I loved Esau. I hated it. But now Edom comes into the picture. Just put Esau back in that place if it helps your brain or put Edom. Remember, Esau was hairy in Hebrew. And Jacob, Jacob, means heel catcher. They were twins. Remember, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and one came out, and Harry, by the way, came out first, Esau, and he comes out, and Jacob is holding on, the little one is holding on to his heel, like trying to pull him back, like, you're not going to beat me out of here. And you, you know the story of Jacob and Esau. Did Jacob ever try to get anything from his firstborn brother? His birthright, right? He wanted his blessing and his birthright. He was always working at an angle, and by the way, I don't tell you this in case your name is Jacob, and not to make you feel bad, but in Hebrew, Jacob, Jacob, comes to mean one who tries to catch your heel, but it's with the idea of pulling you back. It gets interchanged with the word we say surplanter, someone who's trying to get away from the person that's maybe ahead of them. They want to surplant them. They want to take away what they have and get it for themselves. And Well, Jacob, Jacob gets used down the road in Hebrew as kind of dirty, sneaky thief in business, always working an angle, taking away the other guy's profit. But it came back to get him when he fell in love with a gal. And his father-in-law kind of spun the tables on him. And the father in well, you wanted to marry my, what was that, my younger daughter? Well, I can't do that till I get my older daughter married. The table will get turned on Jacob later with Rachel and Leah. But the Lord is going to take Jacob and an angel is going to wrestle with him. On a night when his brother is coming, Esau, he's going to meet up with his brother. And his brother has already consoled himself years before this. As soon as dad dies, that dirty, sneaky thief, Jacob, brother of mine, he stole not just my birthright, but he dressed up like me and brought in some game and said he was me and he stole the blessing. Esau asks him in Genesis, don't you have a blessing for me? He says, well... You're kind of a wild buck of a man, kind of a ruffian. You're not going to settle. You're going to be one of those wanderers. And the things that are spoken over Esau aren't that nice. It's like, wow, great. So Esau consoles himself. He says, as soon as my father's dead, I'm killing my brother. Those of you that know Genesis 26 to 36, that portion of scripture, the mom steps in right away and says, honey, I don't want Jacob to marry any of the girls from around here. We should send him back home to the relatives. Have him go find a good girl over there. Now, why was she sending him away? Save his skin. His brother was going to kill him as soon as dad died. But interestingly enough, the Bible tells us before they were even born, the Lord declared, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, it seems harsh to us, but we can't look ahead in time like God can. God could see their whole lives and see the, their attitude 
before we would. We would say that's unfair. How could you say a twin's in a womb, you love one and you hate the other? Well, I can't. But God can. Because God already sees everything they're going to do and every attitude they're going to have. And so because of this, the Lord can say things. By the way, Malachi is only quoting from the Old Testament the verse that Jacob, I love, declares the Lord. Esau, I hate it. But this is at a time when it kind of seems like that Esau living over there in Edom, those guys seem to be doing better than the Israelites were doing back in Judah. I mean, they had been banished. They had been carried away in captivity. They had just come back. It was kind of a rat-tat group. If you read about the story of the rebuilding of the temple, they didn't really have it together. Not everything went perfect. And the old guys, when the temple gets rebuilt, it says that at the same time, there was a crying that arose, like a wailing. And the young guys were like, Yahoo, the temple's back. And the old guys were wailing too, but they weren't saying Yahoo. They were saying, the glory of this temple is so much less than the temple that was here before. Because they recalled the temple from before. The captives that had returned were just like, they were crying. And it, but it sounded like one voice of just, Whoa! and it was some cheering and some wailing because, oh, bummer. Now that's the part we come into in the story of Malachi. They come in and the Lord says, I know that those guys over there think that they're going to build and they're going to outdo you. But it's not going to happen. Because I'm not for them. I'm for you. It's a really important point that God is making. The very close of the Old Testament is God speaking to the prophet saying, the enemy thinks that they're winning. They're doing better. And the Edomites, all those ones descended from Esau, they think that they're doing better by not obeying God and doing their own thing. They even have an attitude, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, says the Lord of hosts. They might build, but the Lord says, I'll tear down what they build. And men will call them the wicked territory and people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. They're going to find out that the Lord is not for those guys. He's for you. And then the Lord says, and you will see and you will say, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified. Beyond the border of Israel, the Lord is going to show that he is strong even outside of Israel. So then we read verse 6. A son, he honors his father, a servant, his master. Funny that he would put this right here when we just studied about Esau not honoring his father and Jacob who did honor his father. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, this is God speaking, where is my respect? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name, Lord? He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But I say to you, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Man, look at that stuff on the table of the Lord. Yuck. No good. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame or the sick, is it not evil? He says, why not just offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he might be gracious to us? But with such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? 
Oh, that there were one amongst you who would shut these gates, that you might not uselessly kindle the fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering for you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great amongst the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you will bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame and sick, and so you will bring that as the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but instead sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared amongst the nations. So what were they doing? They were bringing offerings to God. It's just, what kind of offerings? Junk. The guy who vows, I'm going to bring this nice animal to the house of the Lord as a sacrifice. And he instead takes a blemished animal and swaps it out. And Yeah, I don't want to kill that really nice animal. Give me that. That one's got a broken leg. Give me that one. I'll go give that to the house of the Lord. I give the Lord my leftovers. God goes, uh, really, would you do that? Would you do that to your governor? Would he be pleased with what you're giving him? Like if you brought that to your governor, your leader, would you say, here, I want to give you something, president. Would you give him a broken down piece of junk? I say, I just want to bless you with this piece of junk. He goes, you wouldn't do that. The Lord was like, why don't you try that? Try giving that junk you're giving me to your leaders and see how it goes over. Maybe that won't do it for you. Maybe it's a famous rock star, TV star, who's come into your house. To some people, they're more important than the politicians. So pick one of those if that works for your mind. But you wouldn't serve them garbage, would you? You'd be like, oh man, I'm having this celebrity over. I gotta impress them. I gotta come up with some nice meal. And you pull out the stops. And the Lord says, but you do that for man, but you don't do it for me. You don't honor me. Lord goes, Malachi, here's what you tell them. That they should shut the gates, verse 10, that they might not uselessly kindle the fire on my altar. For I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Isn't it funny how we'll give more honor to a man than we'll give to God? The reason I'm telling you is they got the temple back together, but their heart wasn't right on what they were giving to God. As we go through this book, we'll see God is going to take issue with them and say, you guys don't honor me as God. Is God our Father? How do we pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We just called him our Heavenly Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. You're my Heavenly Father. Oh, and they're vowing. Now, see, God had their number. This is the part. He says, and the swindler has a male in his flock, and he vows it. Oh, I got this good animal. I vow I'm going to give that to God. But God's got his number. He calls him a swindler right from the beginning. Because when it came to the sacrifice time, instead he switches in the blemished animal and gives that to the Lord. Well, yeah, I said I was going to give that to the Lord, but, you know, he's going to burn it up anyway, so why should I bother? 
Does anyone know what would happen with the sacrifices? Have you read in the Levitical law how they were to make the offerings and the entrails were to be burnt as a soothing aroma? It represented the prayers of the saints rising up to God and that fragrant aroma, that smell of the meat grilling, the fat. If you watch the Food Network, fat is flavor. But that was to be offered up as a fragrant offering to the Lord. What happened with all the extra meat from the animals? It was to be food for the priests, the ones that served, and all those that served in the temple. And it was also to be used to feed the poor. The sacrifices that people gave to the work of the Lord would take care of the guys that were there doing the work. And by the way, it was a lot of work. If you've ever butchered an animal and done the whole process from taking its life and, and cutting it up and cleaning out the guts and doing the whole thing and then making the offering and Jesus will become the sacrifice, the perfect lamb that is going to be acceptable. But God, his final word to Israel was, you guys are not doing this right. Now, God's going to tell them to straighten it out. And he's going to tell them there's a great blessing if they do straighten it out. Great blessing to those who use the principle here of honoring God as God, giving him great honor, great respect. And see what God will do. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord or at our podcast site, celebratethelord.org. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.
His mercy did. 